0: Today's first article is titled, Why FDR Limited FDIC Coverage, by Aaron Klein. Then we'll follow that up with an article by Angus Loughton, AI Chatbots Spark Upheaval for Fortune Cookies. Jonah Berger has an article, Finding the Words that Get Results, and then Bert Stratton's, My Dad Escaped Taxes But Not Death. So let's begin with the first article, Why FDR Limited FDIC Coverage. The Biden administration responded to the failures of Silicon Valley and signature banks by setting aside the limit on federal deposit insurance, a basic principle of New Deal bank regulation. In Congress, bipartisan support is growing for unlimited deposit insurance. This should worry everyone, but especially progressives. Federal deposit insurance was aimed at protecting the savings of the poor and middle class while leaving the rich to manage the risks of their large deposits. Extending it to large corporations and the wealthy would harm working people. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Banking Act of 1933, it capped coverage at $2,500. The current cap of $250,000 covers about 98% of Americans. Unlimited deposit insurance means that when banks fail, the government pays more. More than 90% of the cost of Silicon Valley's banks' failure went to bailing out the uninsured deposits of companies such as Roku and Roblox. SVB's 10 largest customers had $13 billion in total deposits. Proponents say that banks, and maybe only the big ones, will be paying for deposit insurance. Basic economics shows that banks pass costs on to customers, particularly poor ones. As Georgetown legal scholar Adam Levitan states, the higher costs for increased insurance premiums are likely to flow to the least price-sensitive and most sticky customers, less wealthy individuals. Tougher regulation, along with unlimited deposit insurance, won't prevent bank failures. Banks can, should, and will fail. Almost every year, at least one bank fails for good reason. Banks take risks, compete with each other, and innovate to extend credit more efficiently and effectively. A world in which banks never failed would be even worse than unlimited deposit insurance as not enough risks would be taken and people would be underserved. Supporters of unlimited deposit insurance say that small businesses need this protection. They argue that businesses can't be expected to keep an eye on the health of their bank. But the current system of limited limited deposit insurance seemed to be working before regulators bailed out Silicon Valley Bank. Most small businesses are already fully covered. One study of 600,000 small businesses found their median bank balances was $12,100, less than 5% of today's deposit cap. The deposit insurance limit didn't cause this crisis. Silicon Valley Bank's management caused their bank to fail. The Fed failed as the bank's supervisor. The bank's auditors and credit rating agencies didn't catch the problem. SVB's creditors, including the businesses that bank with them, ignored warning signs such as a journal story five months ago flagging SVB's problems. There will always be some banks that fail. Government's job is to protect the vulnerable, and limiting deposit insurance limits do that. When banks fail, losses should go to those who had their money at risk. Capitalism doesn't work if the wealthy can never lose their money. And now AI, artificial intelligence, chat spots spark upheaval for fortune cookies. Over the past two decades, Charles Lee, the owner and chief executive of Chicago-based fortune cookie factory Winfar Foods Incorporated, has drawn on Chinese proverbs and popular sayings to write thousands of messages that go into the wafers. Mr. Lee says he and his 80-year-old father-in-law spend long hours coming up with lines that are clever, but still brief enough to fit on a ribbon of paper. Winfar now supplies fortune cookies to more than 11,000 restaurants nationwide, and Mr. Lee says he has had to bring in outside copywriters. Writing fortunes is both fun and hard work, he says, which itself sounds like something out of a fortune cookie. The fortune-writing industrial complex, however, is on the brink of a major upheaval. Or, as a cookie might put it, beware, the machines are coming for your job. Open Fortune Incorporated, a New York-based company that supplies printed messages to well over a dozen fortune cookie factories around the world, says it has started using chat GPT technology to potentially generate a near limitless inventory of new messages. By some estimates, 3 billion fortune cookies are made by factories around the world every year. Nearly all are written by a handful of fortune cookie factory owners, their families, or small, small teams of copywriters. Big fortune cookie is divided over whether to embrace the new technology. Some, such as Mr. Lee at Winfar, say artificial intelligence will be a big-time saver and are adopting it. Others, including Kevin Chan, say they will not be turning their pros over to software and aren't convinced smart technology will make a smart cookie. Mr. Chan, the 53-year-old co-owner of the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Factory in San Francisco, says computers writing cookie fortunes is a sign that society is moving too fast. He began composing fortunes as a teenager to help his mother, Nancy Tom Chan, and often cribbed aphorisms from Confucius, he says. Today, the 60-year-old family business cranks out roughly 10,000 handmade fortune cookies every day. Mr. Chan says, and by his count, They have written more than 5,000 fortunes. His favorites are the romantic ones, such as the love of your life is right around the corner. The shop has even slipped marriage proposals into customized cookies by coordinating with the hopeful groom. Fortune cookies are a form of meditation, Mr. Chan says, and people today need to meditate. We are humans. Computers are just computers. Sean Porat, the chief fortune officer of Open Fortune, says the chatbot's underlying software, designed to provide human-ish responses to simple prompts, can in seconds spit out messages that are indistinguishable from those of veteran fortune cookie writers. For those who might bash artificial intelligence as not yet perfected, Mr. Porat says chat GPT's oddball tendency to occasionally deliver cryptic responses makes the technology a perfect fit. Part of the charm of fortune cookies is the occasional message that reads like it was written by, well, a robot pretending to be a person. After several months of fine-tuning the algorithm, the messages have become more or less intelligible, Open Fortune says. Among the nuggets, you will soon have a delightful encounter with a stranger who will add a pinch of spice to your life. The AI software also produced head scratchers such as Your fate is written in the stars and encrypted in the clouds. Fortune cookies, largely unheard of in China likely originated in Japan centuries ago, according to the Museum of Food and Drink in New York. Japanese immigrants in the 1800s are believed to have brought them to California, where years later they were picked up by Chinese restaurant owners looking to adopt traditional Chinese food for the American palate. Wanton Food Incorporated, one of the world's largest fortune cookie manufacturers, based in New York, with a distribution network that supplies more than 40,000 restaurants nationwide, currently has a database of some 15,000 messages, says Derek Wong, Wanton Food's vice president of sales. Instead of software, Wanton Food is currently recruiting fortune cookie writers and aims to add another 5,000 or so to its inventory of messages. Recent applicants include English literature grads and journalists. We ask them to send in samples and we go from there, Mr. Wang says. Mr. Lee of Winfar Foods, which supplies fortune cookies to thousands of restaurants, believes software is up to the task and calls it a great idea. Winfar already has started using Open Fortune's cookie writing software at its factory to produce messages. Mr. Lee still has a fondness for the many fortunes he's written with his father-in-law and says they still get a laugh over them, including one of his all-time favorites. Yesterday was bad, but don't let it ruin tomorrow. Or do, we're not your therapists. And finding the words that get results by Jonah Berger. From emails and presentation to phone calls and face-to-face conversations, almost everything we do involves words. Even our private thoughts rely on language. But certain ways of using words have far more impact. They are better at changing minds, captivating audiences, and driving action. Sometimes it's just one word that makes a difference. Research that my colleague and I published in 2017, for example, found that saying you recommend rather than like something makes people 32% more likely to take your suggestion. Other words operate more like gateways. A study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that adding the word because to a request followed by the reason for it, increase compliance by 50%. More often, however, the power of words has less to do with picking a particular word than with paying attention to how words operate and affect people in various contexts. Understanding these patterns is crucial to using words more effectively to achieve our goals. So what are these magic words and how can we use them? Activate identity. Everyone wants to see themselves positively. By framing particular actions in a way that helps create those positive perceptions, we can encourage people, including ourselves, to behave accordingly. When asking people to do things, we often try to motivate them using verbs, such as in, can you help me revise this PowerPoint deck, or please turn out and vote. But try this simple shift. Rather than asking people to help, ask them to be a helper. A 2014 study found that asking children for assistance this way increased helping by almost a third. Similarly, rather than asking people to vote, research published in the National Academy of Sciences journal, PNAS, found that asking them to be voters increased turnout by 15%. Want people to listen? Ask them to be listeners. Want them to lead? Ask them to be leaders. The same goes for undesired behavior, but in the opposite direction. Want people to behave more ethically? Rather than saying don't cheat, a 2013 study found that saying don't be a cheater more than half the amount of unethical behavior. People don't want to see themselves negatively, so they avoid the action. Language also can help us think of ourselves as agents capable of making original contributions. We often ask ourselves, what should I do, or how should I respond? But thinking about should often gets us stuck on the idea that there's just one narrow, right path. Instead, research finds that asking ourselves what we could do helps us to be more creative it leads us to take a step back and think more broadly about possible actions. Some people are so charismatic that whenever they say something, others listen. But if you look at why, there's a common source of this charisma. They speak the language of certainty. When picking financial advisors, for example, a study found that people prefer advisors who express greater certainty even though that confidence outstripped advisors' actual results. When people speak with certainty, we're more likely to think they're right. But most of us do just the opposite. We hedge our language, saying that things might work or that something could be a good idea. Unfortunately, research that Demi Oba of Duke University and I conducted found that such hedging often undermines our impact. It makes people think we're less certain about what we are saying, which makes them less likely to follow our suggestions. If you have to hedge, though, at least take ownership. Adding a personal pronoun, it seems to me like this will work, is less detrimental because it suggests that the communicator is confident enough to associate what they're saying with themselves, which makes others more likely to listen. Whether in a meeting or on a call with customer service, people want to feel heard. So how do you show that you're listening? When Grant Packard of York University and I analyzed thousands of customer service calls, we found that a certain type of language had a big impact. Service agents are often taught to tell customers that they care. But stock phrases like, your call is important to us, or I'm happy to help are so overused and so often counteracted by agents' actual actions that they often fall flat. That is why concrete language is important. Citing specifics like, I'll make sure the shoes are at your house tomorrow, shows that someone paid attention to what you said, understood it, and is taking action in response. We found that such language increased customer satisfaction and even encourage subsequent purchases. Questions help us collect information, but they do much more than that. They direct attention and shape how we're perceived. It's not just the act of asking questions that matters, but the type of questions and the language we use in asking them. Consider asking for advice. People are often wary of asking others for help. We don't want to bother them, and we worry that they'll think less of us. But it turns out the opposite is true. Asking for advice makes people seem more capable, skilled, and qualified, according to a 2015 report in the journal Management Science. The person giving advice gets to feel valued for their knowledge and tends to return the compliment. Of course, my opinions are valuable, so this person is smart for asking for them. 2017 study by a team of Harvard researchers finds that follow-up questions carry extra impact. If a colleague says that he liked a presentation, for example, ask them which part they found most interesting. They say they are concerned a new project isn't working, asking them why they feel that way. And if the spouse says they had a long day, don't just say, I'm sorry to hear that, But ask, rather than just being polite. follow-up questions demonstrate that we listened, understood, and want to know more. And this makes people like us and want to get to know us better. It's often said that certain people just naturally have a way with words. They're persuasive and charismatic, and it seems like they always know the right thing to say. But for the rest of us who aren't born that way, are we just out of luck? Not quite, because being a great writer or orator isn't something you're born with. It's something you can learn how to do. Words have an amazing impact, and by understanding when, why, and how they work, we can use them to our best advantage. And now, My Dad Escaped Taxes But Not Death by Bert Stratton. My dad didn't teach me to fix cars, he taught me to fix the books. He kept two sets, one in pencil, the other in ink. The books in pencil were the real numbers, and the books in ink showed a lesser profit for the Internal Revenue Service. My dad owned apartment buildings and handled a lot of cash, security deposits, fees for pets and parking spaces, and upfront rent payments at move When I started working for him, he told me to take an accounting class at Cleveland State University. I already have a bachelor's degree, Dad, I said, overvaluing my English major. But Introduction to World Trade did sort of appeal to me, I admitted. That's a BS course, my father said. Take accounting. In class, I worked on practice sets for the fictional Bell Print Shop and Smith Dry Cleaners. Meanwhile, in the real world, we rented a storefront to a dry cleaner named Pack, who sold the business to Kim, who considered selling it to Lee. No Smiths in sight. I worked for my father, Toby, for 10 years. Then he got leukemia. On his deathbed, he said he didn't want an obituary because it, he thought it might tip off the IRS to a change in his status and attract an audit. When he died in 1986, an editor at the Cleveland Plain Dealer asked to write something up. Toby had once gotten the editor a moonlighting job at the key manufacturing company where he worked his day job. The editor had handled the company's in-house newspaper. My mother nixed the Plain Dealer's obit. My dad's obit ran in the Cleveland Jewish News. Probably few IRS agents read that. My dad attended Ohio State University on a scholarship, majored in chemistry, and lived in the football stadium in a big open room with cots for poor students. He saw Jesse Owens run. Several years after he died, I bumped into a certified public accountant in downtown Cleveland who remembered him. The CPA reminisced about my father's bookkeeping style, saying, that's how the generation did it. But the second generation generally goes legit. The second generation, that's me. When a tenant pays cash for a month's parking, I mark it down in ink. I once had an in-person IRS audit and came out ahead. I got a credit for $340 because I had forgotten to enter building supply expenses on my Schedule E. Real estate income and expenses. My business is legit. I think Dad would be proud. I'm filing without fear. That brings us to the end of today's articles, and all these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I look forward to being back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.